For me, fashion is a verb. So it's true fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. How are you doing? Now, if you've been listening to the last few shows, we've talked up this interview all about New York's proposed new sustainable fashion law. It's called the Fashion Sustainability and Social Accountability Act. And if it passes, those behind it say this groundbreaking piece of legislation will make New York the global leader in accountability for the $2.5 trillion fashion industry. And Stella McCartney agrees. Okay, she's not based in New York, but she sells her stuff there, which is why this is so important. This proposed piece of legislation will essentially mean that any big brand selling in New York has to comply. Now, the organisers behind it point out that if we looked at New York like a separate country, it would rank as the world's 10th largest economy, bigger than Canada, bigger than Russia and Korea. Now, you already know that the fashion industry has major climate impacts. It's responsible for something like 4% of emissions, some say even more. And of course, New York is a global fashion capital. It's very commercial. And this gives it, say, the voices behind the bill, a really powerful role to play when it comes to making fashion as an industry accountable to people and planet. Now, this interview is quite long. So if you want to listen to it in two bits go ahead, but you're going to absolutely love it. It's a fantastic conversation with a woman I admire very much, who is Maxine Beda. She's one of the key voices behind this bill through her work as the founder of the New Standard Institute. But she's also a woman with many strings to her bow. You might know her from her former fashion brand and platform Zadie which she used to run it with her former business partner, Soraya Darabi. But it was like back in the 2010s, very ahead of its time. Maxine is also the author of a terrific book that came out last year. It's called Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment. We'd love to know what you think, so send us your feedback. I'm on Instagram and Twitter, as you know, at Mrs. Press. And you can find all the links to Maxine's work on our website, thewardrobecrisis.com, and all the detail of the bill. And if you want to follow its progress, then check out on Instagram, the new Standard Institute. It's at NSI Fashion 2030. All right, let's get to it. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Maxine Buda. Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to talk to you. I was asking you before about pronouncing your very lovely surname and if you were in fact French and you said to me... I am not. (laughs) I am uh, married to a Frenchman though. But I had just discovered before we were recording that you are, in fact, kind of Australian. I am legally an Australian. Are you? Right. <laughs> yeah. Passport and everything. So your parents are Australian. Did you grow up here? No, I. Uh, my father lived there for quite a long time, and I lived there for a bit as well. And in that process, became Australian in Perth. In Perth. Yeah. Gosh. Far away. But where are you now? <laughs> so you're a you live in New York, but you are from Minnesota, right? Yes. Born and raised in Minnesota and then went to college and law school and my career has been in New York since then. I'm so pleased that you're joining us to unpack this groundbreaking proposal for the Fashion Sustainability and Social Accountability Act. And if listeners have been following sustainable fashion 
in the past few weeks, you've probably seen this news, but it's a piece of legislation that if adopted, you say, will make New York the global leader in accountability for the $2.5 trillion fashion industry. It's funny, actually. I mean, not funny, fabulous, that two of our previous guests on this very new Series 7 have brought this up in interviews. Cecilia Torsmark, who is the CEO of Copenhagen Fashion Week. And then last week, Mara Hoffman and I touched on it in her interview. So lots of noise around this, but do you want to just begin by outlining what this is? Yeah, so it's the the Fashion Act, is which we just shorten it, it's easier to say, is really looking at both the environmental and social impacts of the fashion industry. And it's the first of its kind in being very comprehensive. So it's a New York state bill, but it's for it would reach any company that has sales over a hundred million dollars that is selling in New York. So this is a bit of legislative background, but it really takes a model of California, where California, they set fuel efficiency standards for California, but they knew that they had such a large market that whatever they dictated within that state could then dictate how cars are created. And that's very much the same model in this bill, which is saying, if you want to sell clothing or shoes in New York state, you have to operate under these guidelines. Mm. Uh, and so that's really, it's it's New York, but has a global reach. And then it's looking at both the environmental and the social impacts of the industry and setting kind of what can be the, the basic standard using a mandatory due diligence framework and then very clear disclosures. And then on the environmental side of things and the climate side of things, setting science-based targets, not just disclosures around science-based targets, but a requirement to meet science-based targets. But just so this, if it were to be passed, would apply to any big brand that was selling in New York. So as you'd said, it's not just New York brands or American brands. It could be Prada, it could be Gucci, it could be anyone who wants to do business there. It could be Shein, it could be Boohoo, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh God, interesting. All right, let's just stick on California as setting precedent in the fuel industry or in the cars industry. But I was interested in why New York for this. California's got context here with modern slavery legislation. I believe that was introduced in 2010 and brought into law in 2012. And then this year, we've seen the Garment Protection Act introduce minimum wages there and also remove the the peace rate problem that workers face that makes them have to work too fast and too hard for not enough cash. Why, mm-hmm. why then? Why New York? Well, New York is America's fashion capital. And so I think that's uh, very you know, New York has a distinct responsibility because of that connection with the fashion industry. And so that's why it's very important to be based in New York. But, you know, I think uh, we want advanced legislation across jurisdictions. It's going to take it, you know, in New York, in California, in Australia, in the United Kingdom, you know, we need more of this. And we've been really excited to see that other states have already picked up this legislation. And so it's important, you know, there's a very important fashion nexus um, Mm. in New York. And I think also what was exciting to see with the legislators that have, you know, taken the the lead sponsors in the Senate and Assembly have said, you know, we need to have some healthy competition with California. California can't just be the only progressive state. We need to be doing the same. And I think that's the type of competition that we want. (laughs) Tell us about the sponsors. Yeah. So the lead sponsor in the Senate is Senator Alessandra Biagi. And then the lead uh, sponsor in the Assembly 
is Assemblymember Dr. Anna Kellis. I liked her because she had referred to these quite far-reaching suggestions as common sense protections. Yeah, yeah. She's absolutely fantastic. You know, a wonderful scientist too. And I think that's, you know, we're really looking at what are the measures we can have to ensure that an industry that's accountable. And so it's great to have a, you know, a scientist as a lead sponsor in the assembly. But common sense. Right, exactly. It is, it is about common sense. And that's, you know, we've become so skewed, I think, in this space to these things are just common sense. And I think if we, you know, it, it is the appropriate language for what this this bill and is setting out to achieve. And I and I think that that's where we need to get to is, and that's this bill is really an effort to do that is to kind of strip away the green washing or green wishing, you know, whatever it is, and just get to like this is what we need to see and we need to know that is happening in order to actually be able to see if we're making progress as an industry or not. All right. I want to ask you to unpack the cornerstones of this proposal. But first of all, is it going to fly? That's what I wanted to know. When are we going to know? (laughs) What's the process? (laughs) So the legislative session in New York runs between January and late spring. And so that's why the bill was introduced right at the beginning of the session, because the legislators know, you know, this is a particularly meaty bill. And so there's the hope from the um, legislative side is that we'll get to a vote kind of by early spring on this and see that it passes. And I think sometimes these efforts take a while and we will be there, you know, making sure that it's getting pushed through. But I think what, you know, this comes at such a time where there there's been so much work being done, you know, by so many different organizations, so many different people including you, Claire, to, to raise these issues that now we are at a place that, you know, people are really paying attention to this legislation and, and seeing that this stuff is needed. And, um, and so, you know, the time is definitely now and we can't wait. So, you know, we're hopeful that we'll get this through in this session. All right. What role did Stella McCartney play? <laughs> What's she got to do with it? I love that she does have something to do with it. Yes, so do I. <laughs> Well, she actually was the the brave soul at COP to say that legislation was necessary. Um, And that was definitely duly noted by, you know, the coalition that was starting to form around this in New York. And uh, we were officially connected by Amber Valletta. And we've just, you know, the coalition has been so pleased and thrilled that she's gotten on board. And yeah, just from her important vantage point, just saying we need to do this, like, we as a company might not be doing all of these things right now, but this is the direction that we need to go. So it's really, you know, we're thrilled to have her on board. I'm going to shamelessly plug episode 107, a couple of series ago, where we interviewed Amber Valletta. She's fantastic. All right. So what did Stella do? She gave you an endorsement or she said, let's get to this. She's on the press release. Yeah, no, she's she and her whole team have really, you know, gotten behind the bill and, you know, with quotes and and offers of support in in various other ways. So she's, you know, really been central. And I think, yeah, having her important critical voice within the fashion industry is such an important, you know, introduction of this bill. Okay, we haven't even told listeners why you are discussing this bill with us today. (laughs) (laughs) And I I am going to, after this, get into the detail of the bill, because I think it's so interesting. But just tell us about the New Standard Institute and what your mission is and what you do, Maxine. 
Sure. So the New Standard Institute, we're coming up on three years now. It's time flies. It's crazy. But we're we're in the business. We call ourselves a think and do tank. So we're really looking at data and trying to bring just clear data from scientists, from people with lived experience, you know, in the space to help provide clarity for citizens, for consumers, for the industry itself on kind of what are the ways forward um, so that the industry can have the potential to be a force for good. So we're really all about the data. (laughs) Oh, well, was it inspired by just the terrible numbers that we habitually used to and perhaps still do in some, to some extent, share that just aren't true? Like it's been very difficult, hasn't it, to get hold of the right numbers yeah, exactly. And it, it really stemmed from, so before New Standard Institute, I co-ran a company called Zadie. And that was kind of, we were looking at, well, we developed our own supply chain for our own product. But what we found out was like, as we were putting this information together back at Zadie, media and other companies would reach out to us and say, like, this is all really helpful. You know, can we get more support? And I think that was when I, you know, personally realized I was like, oh, wait, people, this isn't just consumers or citizens that don't know this, like the industry doesn't seem to know this. Um, And so that was the turn to let's really focus on that data, because there is, as you said, like, a lot of misinformation, confusing information out there. For listeners who are thinking, what do you mean? We might be talking, for example, about fashion's carbon footprint. Now there are many more reports that we can rely upon to know that we are talking, we're talking about the numbers in the right way. But you know, fashion's the second biggest polluter after oil. I've said that before, not true, etc. So there's been a real history of confusion around exactly what we're dealing with here when it comes to the numbers of fashion and sustainability. And if we don't know what they are, how can we change them? Yeah, exactly. And I think it's not great that there's misinformation swirling about, but I think it's also important to look back at why we don't actually have a lot of clear information. And that's because the industry does not disclose that information. Hence, getting back to Mm -hmm. the necessity of the Fashion Act is, you know, being able to have very clear information about information and accountability for, you know, what is happening in this industry. You mentioned before that there is momentum behind this act, but also change in the industry in general. Now, I'm going to say that we're recording this at the start of 2022. So for future listeners down the track, if you come to this episode a bit later on, it is a really interesting moment right now that feels like a lot of different organizations are coming together. There's a lot more awareness. There's more action coming from consumers. What do you think is driving momentum? If I kind of track back, you know, like 10 years ago when I first got started in this space, like very few people (laughs) were talking about it. And, you know, when I would start to discuss this with industry people, it was like, what? This isn't this isn't our issue. You know, then I think fast forward like five years ago, there was more awareness that the fashion industry had an issue. And then I think following that as like citizens became more engaged with the environmental crisis, environmental Mm. justice, social justice, then the industry started to, you know, that was like really when all the green stuff, (laughs) you know, started happening and the sustainable collections and things. And then we've also had, you know, growing organizational front and growing 
additional voices in the space, which is so important. And so I think there's been more information, more, you know, kind of pushing on the industry while there's been sort of companies claiming to do things and, you know, with that more media attention. And so I think it's, you know, that it's all of that coming together. And I think a real sense of urgency, especially from young people, like we need to do stuff. Like we can't just talk about this anymore. We need to do the things. And I also think part of it is like, we have fast fashion and now we have even faster disposable fashion. I think there's just like a disgust in that. And like, really, mm-hmm. this is where we're going. It's gonna, We're just going to go into a worse place. And so I think that's also kind of just fueling like, wait, we need substantive change here. All right, let, let's talk about the detail of what change is proposed by the bill. You mentioned science-based targets before. For listeners who don't know what they are, just tell us what they are briefly. Sure. So a science-based target means that a company is operating within the bounds of the Paris Agreement. And so that is, I think it's the first of its kind in terms of legislation that is requiring companies both set and achieve science-based targets. It's an agreed methodology within the scientific community of how we measure uh, the carbon footprint. And what we have found is that companies are committing to set these targets. They are sometimes setting these targets but we're looking at the data and they're not on their way to achieving these targets. And so I think that's an important thing for people to realize in this space is, you know, a company can set a public commitment, but there's nothing that's going to happen to that company if they don't achieve that commitment. And so that's why a laws is really necessary to ensure that companies really will are going to be on their way. All right. Interesting you raise that. Does this proposed bill have teeth? Will brands be punished or disincentivized from not taking action? Because when we look at some of the modern slavery legislation, for example, you got to report, you got to say you're acting. But if you don't, there aren't really ramifications. If you haven't fixed it, you can sort of continue to coast along. Yeah. So with the science-based targets language, um, that's very clear. The the language is in the bill as it stands is that the company has to set and meet those targets. So. In this case, if a company is not setting or achieving, then the attorney general can go after them. If the company is found not to be operating within line with the law and after given three months to correct, they can be fined up to 2% of global revenues. All right, let's talk about transparency. That's a cornerstone of your work through its evolution. But how is it set out as a requirement in this bill? So the kind of framework that is the starting point, but is not the only component in the bill is this mandatory due diligence framework. So in a mandatory due diligence, it's looking at the process of how a company is identifying, preventing, mitigating, and accounting for how they address the negative impacts in their supply chain, both the real impacts that they can see now and any potential ones. So the proposal is focused in on this due diligence process as a starting point. And then there's also, in addition to this due diligence process, which is what a company is doing to assess their risks in their supply chain and what they are doing to mitigate and account for those risks. It's it's not just like, we're doing all these bad things or there's all these risks. It's what are we doing to actually account for those risks? And then setting about standards about how a company can actually Like, what does that mean for a company in terms of what they're doing? And then there's also other important disclosures. 
including what is the total volume of material that the company is using. I saw that. Sorry to interrupt you. That's that's radical because no one tells you that. No, they do not. And I think that's really important because again, going back to our the earlier part of our conversation is that there's one kind of study that we can turn to and we don't know what assumptions were baked in to kind of even just number of garments that are produced on an annual basis. And so even as a prerequisite to additional legislation down the line, we need to know how much material this industry is producing and what type of material I think also related to the plastics issue. Oh, wow. That just made me think of this quote from your book, which I wrote down because it was so shocking about how much fabric China produced in 2020. Do you remember? Yeah, it was uh, 45 billion meters of fabric, which I think is enough to wrap around the planet uh, over 1200 times. Oh, my word. Just take a moment, listeners, to think about the volume of that, because when we talk about numbers, sometimes it's hard to grapple with them. But think about more than a thousand times wrapping around the world. That's the fabric we're churning out just from one country in one year. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely staggering. And I I remember thinking about that statistic because the 45 billion meters was the part that was in the stat. And just I was like, how does one even kind of capture that in any human scale? Like, it's just so unfathomable. I think that was when we, you know, kind of got to how many times does it wrap around the earth? We're, we're so out of balance, aren't we? It's completely out of balance. And I think, you know, this moving to an even more disposable model is just, I don't know, there's nothing else to say except it's completely disastrous, you know, let alone on the other side, you know, even within the luxury space, there's still a lot of work to do. We're going to talk about your book, but I want to know, What's pushing you, Maxine? I want to know. I saw your your little kid in in the snow in a little hat. Who is that? Um, that's my daughter, Leo. She's just turned three. Ah, but yeah, it made me want to ask you, what were you like as a kid? Oh, um, what was I like as a kid? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's actually interesting. I was reading the letter. This is apropos of Australia. Reading the letter from my year seven teacher, And she wrote a a very nice letter. I guess I always thought of myself as like a pretty basic kid in a lot of ways, just trying, you know, to conform. And then I got, I saw this letter from my year seven teacher, Mrs. Guild. And she said that I, you know, had really like stood up for kind of the social injustices that I had seen out in Perth. And I was like, oh, I guess that is deeper in me than I recall. I love that. I always want to know about it. Yeah, because some children do have a kind of sense of wanting to fight for what's right or protect nature or protect the world. I don't know. But obviously, you know, the seeds of what we become in adulthood are born in childhoods. And I just wondered, like, for example, I was very talkative, always interrupting pain in the arse of a kid. (laughs) And look at you now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, is that right? (laughs) But so you wanted to become a lawyer. Well, I was an immigrant child, so I was told I could become a doctor or a lawyer. Um, And I think law was more my sensibilities. And I wanted to see kind of where impact happened. And I, I always just, I'm a curious person. I think that is like a through line in my history is like, how does the world work? How is it put together? And I think for me, 
the way in which it's put together right now just does not make sense. And I think that that was always, it just didn't make sense to me. And maybe like that, it wasn't like led by the fire, but it's just like that, this isn't how it should be. You know, you could have been a country solicitor who did conveyancing. You could have been a lawyer who worked in corporate law, assisting big business to get ahead, but you chose to do something very different. And that's why I asked about your kind of sense of justice, because you ended up interning in Tanzania, right? Yeah. So I, in law school, I kind of, I did the traditional big law firm summer, and then I did a, a summer working in the Rwandan criminal tribunal, which is what I had written my undergraduate thesis on. So I guess I've always been interested in the subject. Mm. And so, yeah, I worked there for a summer and I, I think that was a very formative experience. I was wondering if maybe you're kind of seeking out of fashion or craft or beautiful artisan stories was a way of kind of taking some time out or was it a way of trying to connect with where you were? Yeah, I think it was a way of connecting with where I was because I felt very disconnected in that court. It was quite an isolating experience, you know, away from everyday Aruchans. Uh And so, you know, going to the markets, like I've always loved whenever I've traveled or, you know, lived a place to see the grocery store, see the markets, like see where stuff happens. Um, and that's definitely what, you know, led me to those markets. And then being somebody that, you know, was born and raised in Minnesota, which is where the Mall of America is, the largest mall in the country and the home of Target, you know, I knew how things were like sold to me, but it was the first kind of experience that I got to have of actually connecting with product and and then like finding my way back to the process of how those things were made. Tell us about markets that you went to and what you discovered. So I, there were a few markets and like objects that I found that were really transformative for me. I think one was just like the beautiful fabric. And then again, yeah, I don't have a background in fashion. So we, we, I got to work with really just expert designers and sewers like that were just happened to be around the courthouse. And these women just like, they were magic to me, you know, being able to turn fabric into garments. Yeah. Somebody not from the fashion space. That was, that is pure magic. <laughs> just getting a peek into that process for me was just like, wow, that's so skilled and magnificent. And then that fabric. And then I chased down some baskets and went to the town where they were made and just cannot forget, like it was one side that was all these basket sellers, all of, you know, the similar style of basket. And then on the other side of the main street, they were all like dried fish sellers. And I was like, that's a weird combo. And then lo and behold, like that town was based on the banks of a river in which I learned that those baskets grow from reeds along the river. And of course the fish came from the river. And I was like, that shouldn't be so shocking to me. <laughs> like I, I should be more connected to my stuff that I could think of that. So out of that experience came the uh, nonprofit, the bootstrap project. And from there came Zadie. Tell us about, I'm very interested to know what the sustainable fashion scene was like in New York at that time. Oh, there wasn't one or we weren't, we didn't know of it. <laughs> um, it was just such a totally different world. I think people were like, what? 
telling the story behind your clothes. Why? You know, when we were pitching investors that we would like, well, this was such a different time that Whole Foods, the grocery store chain in the US, was not owned by Amazon at the time. And it was a pioneer at that time of transparency in food. And so that's like what we were trying to connect it to. And it was just, yeah, it was a very different time than now. People just didn't know what you were making a fuss about. Yeah, they didn't know, like, why should they even care about clothing and where it comes from? Yeah, it was completely new. (laughs) So what was your big idea? So it was through the story of the originally from the Bootstrap Project, which was a nonprofit working with artisans. I had such a transformative experience, you know, and I knew that other people, if they had the same experience that I had the benefit of having, would also, you know, change their relationship to their stuff. And so that was that was really the journey. And I guess like that has continued to be my journey up until today, <laughs> you know, sharing that information and and those stories more importantly. And, it, you know, Zadie really was a platform of stories to just connect people to the amazing artists and craftsmen and all the work that just goes into the products that we have. Cause it's, you know, in our day and age, obviously become so out of sight, out of mind. And so that was, that was really the project of Zadie. And then we started with what is now we call multi-brand retailer, but we were trying to tell the full story. Like we didn't have words like supply chain. It was like, we were just trying to tell the full story and we couldn't find a company that knew the full story. And so then it was like, okay, so are we going to go try to create a product that we can at least tell that story? And that was really, we started our own collection. And that was really when we started, you know, getting deeper and deeper into the information about the impact of the industry and, and what was happening. You had talked about how your relationship with products and items and handmade things changed, but I want to know how your relationship has subsequently changed when it comes to entrepreneurship. And I was thinking about what an American idea that is, of course, not exclusively so, but this idea that we fix problems by a great business. And I'm not saying that's not a good thing because clearly some great businesses have done amazing work when it comes to impact in social and environmental realms. But the older I get, the more I, or well, not even older, maybe it is age, but the more deep the in this wiser. work. The wiser. Is it wise? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. The deeper into this work I get, the more, I mean, the more I start to wonder whether we're kidding ourselves thinking that business is going to solve business's problems. So yeah. I was interested. Yeah. What's your relationship with entrepreneurship these days now that that is behind you? Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's such an interesting question because I was very much fed in the institutions that I went to school in on like neoliberal capitalism to the extent that in my law school, like the solution for social justice was, you know, through business. Like that is what was offered. I was I didn't go to business school. I went to law school. Like, and I think, you know, the social enterprise was like the interesting, cool innovation. And I distinctly remember when um, Sarai and I went to go raise money, we said that like, oh, our parents' generation, they thought that social change happened, you know, through marching on the streets and we know better. And I just like cringe thinking about that. And it was, it took me going through Zadie to be like, wait a minute, even if we did created the best product ever, first of all, we're still creating product. And second of all, that's not the whole industry. And it was 
you know, definitely that I, you know, began to read more and listen to other voices and yeah, realize like, oh, I had absorbed a definite worldview that I, you know, I don't, I think business is an important player, but I think it requires a lot of different stakeholders to make the changes that we need to make. And it's not going to be just business Mm. alone. I also wanted to ask you about that word, sustainable fashion. I note in the closing pages of your book, (laughs) which will come to shortly, this sentence, I've got it written here. I didn't just remember it. So, so called sustainable fashion perpetuates a notion that we can buy our way into sustainability and that it's just a matter of purchasing this thing over that. This is not the case. The most sustainable thing is to not buy the thing at all. Yep. <laughs> I stand by, I stand by those words. Yeah. I was definitely thinking through with Zadie and it's not, I'm not, denigrating the work of people, you know, within brands trying to to, mm. to do the right thing. But we as citizens need to realize that the greatest impact reduction we can have is not buying the thing or extending the life of the things that we already have. Mm. And when the conversation becomes so dominated by the sustainable fashion, quote, sustainable fashion, we only see the solution like through purchasing. And that mm. is not going to get the changes that we need to get at the pace in which we need to make them. I love that we're having this difficult conversation, Maxine, because both of us work in and have worked in sustainability with passionate hearts to do things better. And I'm sure we all know many, many incredible business founders and designers who are really working hard to do it right. But it is just a lie, isn't it? To tell ourselves that this is the thing or the only thing that's going to fix it. And I love how you phrased it, choosing this over that. Like, oh, just get these sneakers instead of these bad sneakers, these good ones, not these bad ones, and everything will be well. It's just not right, is it? No, it's not. And I can't recall how many times like editors, and this has evolved, thank goodness, but like editors have said, especially in the beginning days of Zadie, like, just tell us the, you know, the five things to purchase and look out for. I'm like, but you're asking the wrong question. Like, why are we making that purchase? That's the question we should be asking. And yeah, I think that. It is the same with, you know, getting disclosures around the material use. We need to know how much impact that we're having. And I think that it's not an easy conversation for companies to have, but it is the one that we need to have. You know, if we're doing a cool, sustainable collection, first, we need to know measurably, like, how much are they reducing and in what categories of impact? And then how much of that collection is of the entirety of the rest of the collection? And are you continuing to produce more product? And if we're not having that conversation, we're not doing anything. You know, then that is just greenwashing or greenwishing. I hadn't heard the phrase greenwishing till our conversation. I love it. Well, I don't love it, but it's a good one. (laughs) It's a good one. I didn't, I can't claim to make it up and I don't recall who told it to me, but I think it is, it is a good one because I think that there are people that it is their aspiration. They're trying to do the right thing. It's just, it just isn't. All right. I mentioned your fantastic book. It's called Unraveled the Life and Death of a Garment. And it begins with you in the Zadie days attending a trade show in New York and finding that pretty much no one there could tell you anything really about the fabrics they were selling. Yep. That was definitely the case. I have it so in my mind's eye of being at Javits Center, the big convention center in New York. And it was a huge fashion trade show and just like going from stalls to stall. And like, at the time it was a very innocent question. I was like, excuse me, do you know where, you know, the, can you tell me where your P 
pieces come from. And just the responses were like, oh, wow, this is more of an issue than I had anticipated in a harder project than I was anticipating. I mean, that okay, that's 10 years ago, I suppose, but people did not know. It's not that they weren't trying to hide it. They didn't know, right? Yeah, at that time, they weren't even trying to hide. They just like didn't know and would just say really crazy things in response. And I would encourage everyone to buy this book because it's such an interesting journey into how our garments or a pair of jeans, for example, is made right back from, we always talk about it. We always say, oh, you know, fashion comes from the seed to the garment, but you go and meet the people who show you along different stages of the supply chain, exactly what that means from a, an organic cotton farmer through to, I mean, you, we talked about wrapping the blooming fabric more than 1200 times around the earth. You go and look at mills in China and see the size of the machines. Yeah. I mean, the scope of it, like I just, hope that the words translated well enough to the experience of seeing these things and just the just the sheer scale and i i guess growing up in australia when i was young and then thinking back to my friends this is a bit of a juncture but like i think about this often and that it was before like internet was that's how old i am like was a allowed me to communicate easily with my friends back in america and i often just would be like i wonder if if they know that like it's nighttime here and it's daytime there and like mm. we are have different seasons. I wonder if my friends like think about the world in that way. And I think we just if we could have more of that, like this is happening right now. It's a real thing in real places with real people. It's not just like the story. In the book, you reveal to us what it really means to talk about American brands today, which are mostly, you say, or often can be, about product assortment or being a merchant brand rather than actually making stuff. What do you think people don't know or most people might not know about Made in America? Well, American brands are most often not Made in America. Um, that's number one. And then Made in America, the label, doesn't mean that all components were made. And I think there's a huge, just unintended consequence of the law that we have of putting a country of origin because it completely just collapses a very long supply chain so that we just think that a product comes from one place when it can go around the world sometimes more than once before it's even gotten to our doors. On the Zadie label, we used to have like grown in, spun in, woven in, dyed in, and I, I think that there is something to that of just, you know, having people understand just how much goes into it, like the human and environmental elements and work and resources. I think what I've learned, you know, from the research at NSI, from the journey of Zadie, from, you know, writing the book, and now from being a part of this legislative effort is like laws, you know, even the fact that we have in the US, a made-in label. Like that was a law and it was, you know, in part trying to protect domestic manufacturing. And there are unintended consequences that we can have from poorly planned laws. And then there's also like, we can make real substantive change and find real solutions in law. <laughs> Maxine, are you still a lawyer at heart? <laughs> um, I guess I am. Like, I think, 
I, I guess it is so funny how it's come full circle in, in all of this. And I suppose that I am law ultimately in being a lawyer is like looking at a system and that's what laws are. They're setting the, the rules of how our society functions. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll happily take back that mantle. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you Because I love you